So um, my dad had sent a video to the school, specifically to Jim and Scott, about me being baptized a year and a half ago. And uh, further through the story, you'll understand why that was such a significance in my life and his. Um, it took a while for me to want to be baptized because up until actually that I came here and got a better understanding of what baptism was all about and what that meant and the implications of that, I felt as though that I had to work up to be better than what I was, and I had to reach a certain point in my life before I could even attempt to be baptized because I thought it represented Christians and, and how good we are and how good we've become, which, you know, there's an element of truth. But I wasn't focusing on that from being changed and being uh, better from Christ, but more like I have to become better by things that I do before I be baptized. So I was thinking about, you know, the purpose of testimonies, and I don't want to necessarily, I could sit here and talk forever about my whole life and what I've done that, uh, that would show you how I've changed the past by the work of Christ. So I'll start out by saying that I'm going to focus on my teenage years because that's when things really went sour. But I will also say that I was always a rambunctious little sinner, even from day one. So that <laughs> I wasn't good and then reached the point that I turned bad. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, my parents taught us good moral virtues and I knew what right and wrong was and in the kindergarten, I remember one time my mom and I went to a grocery store, and I had my little Carhartt jacket on, and I saw a Twix on the shelf, and I put it in my pocket, and then on the car ride home, I pulled it out, and I was getting ready to eat it, and my mom asked me, she said, where did you get that from? And I was like, Mrs. Davis gave it to me. And she's like, did she? And I'm like, no. And so she turned the car around, and we had to go back and I went up to the clerk, and I had to tell her what I did. So, again, uh, discerning right and wrong was taught in our family. However, I couldn't necessarily put that with, um, with a biblical reference as to why it was wrong, spiritually and biblically speaking. I'm just like, okay. Um, so, in seventh grade, uh, we were getting ready for a hunting trip. Dad had just bought a camper, and uh, we were making some bunk beds so we could fit myself and my sister and my brother some other people, and up in our barn, we had a loft that we used to throw hay down for our horses, and there was about a two-and-a-half by three-and-a-half-foot trap door. We dumped the hay in, and my little sister and I went up there because we also had some lumber, and that Dad told me to get some two-by-four so we can make these things. So Gracie and I go up there, and for some reason, I didn't turn on the lights to the barn. And I got up in the loft, and I was on my knees, and I was backing up, and I was measuring this two-by-four and fell through that trap door 10 feet on my head and had a concussion, and um, I, that's a significant point in my life because uh, I was a pretty active kid and liked to do things with my buddies. Um, and it turned out to be pretty serious. And uh, some of you were like, well, what's wrong with your day, Scott? Yeah, well, and, and so I was in the hospital a little bit, and I lost my taste, my smell, for a year afterwards. And uh, my mom, you know, and I gave her some credence to this because maybe it was just her mother instincts. You know, she was pretty hard on what I did. And she wouldn't let me do some of the things that I used to do because, you know, there are some um, repercussions that could result as from getting hurt again within that allotted time period that I was supposed to stay away from doing these things. 
And so I became a little bit bitter of that, and I couldn't even ride a four-wheeler, so I would wait till everybody would leave, and I would hop on that thing, and then I would put it back in the barn before they came back type of deal. And that was kind of my life for that particular year. Um, and I just felt like I was suppressed, and I was a victim of society and things like that. And, uh, and so finally, then it got uh, the spring after that in March, the doctor said I could play soccer on one condition, and that's if I wore a helmet. And Dad had the bright idea. He's like, well, Stacy was over here riding her horses last week, and I remember she had that one helmet. Why don't you try to put that on? And I was like, no, I'm not wearing that. So then the next three months, I didn't even get to play sports because I wouldn't wear a helmet. And, and so obviously there's some pride there, which didn't help me along down the road. And I, uh, I went to a school called Dayton Christian, and from day one until I was a freshman, so that was pretty, to me, it seemed legalistic because there's a lot of doings, and it almost just became mundane because it's so repetitive. I mean, we would have to uh, turn in sermon notes, like from seventh grade on. We'd have to turn sermon notes to our Bible teacher to make sure that we went to church. We'd have to take sermon notes during chapel. We'd have to dress up, wear a tie, and things like that. And um, I can't really put a put a finger on on any specific moment as to when I started to change or transition, but uh, the passage came to mind in Ephesians 4.26, and this will kind of set the stage for what I'm getting ready to talk about. Um, It says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. And I was listening to, uh, this commercial always comes on on AM radio, and it's talking about fire prevention. He was saying that, you know, an amber from a fire can actually be carried a half a mile, and just that one little amber can start a whole other fire that could cause hundreds of acres to go up in flames. And similarly, um, that's kind of what I did in regards to my dad and our relationship, that uh, what started out is just a little anger issue, and I was pointing out some flaws, and I started to dwell on those. And rather than dealing with those and even talking about it, I just let it simmer and build up in me and blew up into something that was out of control. Um, And again, spiritually speaking, um, I would say that I was not a Christian at the time, and uh, I really had no interest to follow in the Lord. I mean, I even cheated on Bible tests at school just because I didn't care. I mean, I saw no purpose in doing the things that we did at school regarding that. Cause, and then, so I forgot to uh, mention, I also had some beef with a couple of teachers at Dayton Christian. And in uh, one in particular, I don't know if she was bipolar or what. I mean, it could have been true she was, but <laughs> she just, her personality fluctuated a lot. And so what I had a problem with at the time, which built upon my, my anger towards my dad and Christianity in general, was that, you know, she was up here, and she would be doing devotions with us, and then she would act like a total jerk throughout class. And some of that was instigated on my part and my friends. However, you know, <laughs> it, uh, that's one thing that I took and ran with. And then I just kind of, like, started looking at all these sorts of people and also on them to a standard of what I thought Christianity was about and how I didn't see that being played out in their life, and uh, which... Again, here we go, going back to the Ephesians 4.26 passage. I just let it simmer. I let it build up in my life, and um, it just went downhill from there. I didn't want a part of Christianity. I didn't want to hear what anybody had to say about it. I could care less because I thought at the time that it was all just much hypocrisy. Um, I was like, I don't want to be like that. And so I wish I had my outline here. But um, So dad and I continued to butt heads, and uh, my dad's a very stubborn man, I think, everybody except for my mom and 
little sister, very stubborn. And we also had uh, our own company. He was self-employed, and that didn't make things any better because we worked together, we lived together, and we're all stubborn people. So naturally, fleshly that is, we're going to butt heads over stupid stuff too. But it got to the point that Dad and I wouldn't even talk to each other, even within the house. The only time we would talk is if we had to get something done, um, what we are going to be doing for work that day. And uh, I capitalized on many things that I just knew would make my dad angry because I found joy in that. I was kind of trying to turn the tables around and say, hey, joke's on you type deal. Um, for instance, he always said, even when we were little kids, he said, now, boys, if you ever come around here with earrings, I'm going to take my pliers, I'm going to rip them out. You know? And so when I was a freshman in high school, one of the things I did, I ran up to my brother's bathroom, and I got two ice cubes and put a needle through it, and I pierced both my ears. And I got made fun of that from all my dad's friends and people like that. And they're like, oh, and I got the names Sally, Nancy, and things like that. <laughs> However, I didn't care because I knew it was doing the job that I wanted it to do. And uh, although, to dad's credit, he didn't say anything about it because I think he knew what I was trying to do. And, um, and I would, I mean, I started, so, yeah, we, they pulled me out of Dayton Christian because, you know, things weren't going well there, and even... Even they saw some issues with the, the faculty and staff and the way that they were trying to, uh, trying to give off as far as the perception of what they were trying to accomplish in the sense of Christianity. It was getting real legalistic. So they're like, you know what, we want to go a different route than, than this. So they pulled me and my little sister out. We went to a public school my uh, sophomore year, and... Obviously, you're not really around Christians in that context. And so I started hanging around with guys who thought like me, and we all rode together at the time. I had a four-wheeler, and I'd hang out with guys who rode dirt bikes, stuff like that. So obviously, hanging around the wrong crowd, you're going to be involved with some bad things. And the worst part was is that about three miles down the road from where I live, there was a, uh, a drive-through that was run by some Pakistani guys. And I went in there one time. We just got done fishing, me and my buddy Tanner, and we went in there. This dude comes up, and he says, what are you doing, buddy? And I was like, pretty good. And then he's like, what do you want? And I think that is one of the most dangerous questions you could ask a rebellious teenager. What do you want? And I was like, well, I want a six-pack of the Smirnoff apple stuff. And he's like, oh, do you have your ID, buddy? And I was like, no, I left in my work clothes. He's like, okay, you bring it next time. And so I was like, okay. So from then on, I established a relationship that he knew who I was. And so at the age of 16, I could literally, if I had to, ride my four-wheeler down there and get a pack of beer if I wanted to. And so that led down that road. And then obviously when my buddies found out about that, and we didn't have to go through another vessel who was 21 years or older to buy us booze, well, hey, let's call up Scott, and we could go get her done. And so that's what we would do. Um, And that just escalated into stupid stuff. When I was uh, a junior in high school, my brother was in Tyler, Texas. He was uh, a part of the YWAM down there. He came up to Ohio, and he was having a going-away party, and there was a lot of people around the campfire, and things were starting to die down. The campfire was too. So I had actually run down there because some of my friends were there. We had run down this drive-thru, and we already got some some booze, and we were drinking out in the pasture. And then I just came up to Green. I was like, hey, man, the fire's done. He wants to go out in the pasture and get some more wood. He's like, yeah, that's cool. Well, at that point in time, uh, the intoxication level had raised from here to here. I get in my sister's truck. 
I'm coming out of the, and this is after we lit up the wood, we had come out of the truck, and there was this red gate that was adjacent to our barn that swung open from this post. Well, it was only open literally about the width of the truck, so you had to go in there just right, otherwise you'd hit the gate or the barn. Well, I chose to hit the barn. So I'm going out, and I turned the corner too sharp, and the corner of our barn, which had the gate latch on it, got wedged between the cab of the truck and the bed, and I thought it hit a rock, so here I am, not knowing what's going on. I'm flooring the gas, the rear of the truck's going, ur, 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 and, uh, and everybody's like, oh, my gosh, you just ran into the barn. And I just didn't really think anything. I was like, it's probably just a little scratch. And this is actually uh, the week before we were getting ready to go down south to go hunting with a big group of guys that we do annually. And, and the majority of those guys are Christians and friends of my dad's. So... The next day, you know, I went to bed thinking, I was like, okay, well, that's not a big deal. And then the next day, when I was sobered up, I go down behind the barn, and the whole side of my sister's truck's just trash. I mean, the bed was scrunched up. The back of the cab corner was dented in. There was about $3,000 worth of damage. And so then I'm just kind of like, it's speechless. And I'm like, man, that is bad. And so, you know, I can't, Dad didn't say anything to me right away. I mean, Julie, de- Julie didn't. She's like, Dad was best. And so then I'm like, Man, I'm kind of afraid to go back inside. But again, I think that his intent was to still let me go down on the hunting trip. And I don't know what he was thinking, his logic, maybe let the Lord do the the conviction. Um, But we went down there, and, uh, you know, my dad's friends knew what was going on. People in my parents' Sunday school class were praying for me because mom and dad, because it's coming from a parent's perspective. I can't say that yet because I'm not a parent, but I can imagine. What do you do? I mean, you've done just about everything you can. I was kicked out of the house a few times. Um, and I'll tell you about this here in a sec. Dad and I got in a fight. Um, and I embarrassed my family from acting like an idiot when I was drunk, things like that. And so what do you do? They've even had cops come to me, went to a counselor. And I didn't want to have, and I was still in this mindset that I didn't want to hear anything about Christianity. I respected people enough that I could hear out what they had to say to me. At the same time, it's like, you know what? I respect you as a human being, but what you're saying to me, I don't care right now. It's not going to do anything for me. Quit wasting my time type mindset. And, um, and so as a parent, looking at that, what do you do? And so, you know, they got involved. I mean, they shared what was going on, not in the form of gossip, but they were sharing with the body, specifically friends and people at the church, what was going on and asked simply that they could pray. And um, And so... One day, I think I was still a sophomore, maybe it was my, the first part of my junior year, we were out snow plowing, and Dad had called me. And I was on the phone on the way back from a job. Uh, my buddy that I hadn't talked to in like six months called me up. I was talking to him, and then later on in the conversation, I looked down at my phone, and my dad was trying to call me. And I was just like, okay, well, whatever. I haven't talked to Cole in six months. Dad can wait. And so then I get off the phone with Cole, and... I called Dad back. He's like, where are you at? And I was like, well, I'm on my way back from Crestview. And he's like, well, I need you to get back here. And I had to load up some salt because the church had called, and we had to go salt their parking lot like last minute. And so I get back to the house. It's about 930 at night, and our driveway is all gravel, so in the winter it just ices up. And uh, he was outside. He was loading up one of our bobcats. And my two sisters, Julie and my little sister Grace, was outside as well because they were helping Dad get ready. And he came up to me, and he's like, let me see your phone. I was like, why? He's like, let me see your phone. And so I was like, okay. So I gave it to him, and then he calls it up. And when Dad came up on the screen, he says, you see that? 
He said, that means I'm trying to call you. And when I'm calling you and you're on my time, you answer it because I'm your employer type deal. And so then I took it back, and I'm just like, well, that's not going to be a problem anymore. <laughs> and I threw it at the barn, and that just instigated the whole deal. I think that set him off, and it set me off. He came after me. And my dad, not to say anything, he's a lot bigger than I am. He's like six foot and 275. <laughs> and, and so he, he grabbed me here, and I was kind of rumbling around with him just a little bit, and I think he tripped and fell on the ice, which is a good thing because he would have whipped me if it didn't happen. <laughs> and I fell on top of him, and then just naturally, you know, I was throwing some punches, and I broke his glasses, and it was short-lived. It lasted about 30 seconds. And looked over, and both my sisters are in tears. And, um, and Mom came out, and uh, Dad got up, and, uh, and Mom was yelling at Dad, and she said, you know, if you ever touch my son again, you can just get out of here. And so Dad was pretty upset, and he got in the truck, and he went down. He was doing the church that I was supposed to do. And, uh, and I didn't know what to think. I was like, that really just happened. And I got up, and I was like, we need to stop this. I mean, look at, look at your daughters. Look at my sisters. Look at, this is impacting them, not just us. And, uh, and so I sat around, and I helped, helped get the bobcat loaded up. Dad went down there. And it was getting laid out, and we still had snow dumping outside. And I was like, well, I don't want him to be out there by himself. So I went out there, and, and we, we were in the, the parking lot together just plowing. And, you know, I'd ask him if he wanted a Dr. Pepper or anything like that. And you could tell he was naturally and, I'm sure, justifiably upset of what happened. And uh, at that point, and the weird thing about this is, you know, I hear stories about people saying that they they fall away from Christ or, you know, they didn't, they didn't hear of Christ up to a certain point, so it was all a foreign concept. You know, if they were doing like a rebellious thing or had a period or stage in their life that was just off the wall. Well, the funny thing about my particular uh, situation was that even in my teenage years while all this was going on, I still knew even when I was at parties and doing things that I knew I shouldn't have done, I knew that it was wrong, not necessarily because my family said it was, but because I know I couldn't point it out, but just from previous years in church and school that I knew it was wrong. Yet, I just didn't care. I was like, you know what? I'm going to want to do my thing. And I, I don't even know what kind of philosophy I was going by at that time, but I would be at these parties when things were wearing down, you know, I'd always find myself alone. That just gave me time to think. I was like, you know, there would have to be more than this to life. You know, I was hanging out with some pretty good buddies, and you see them, you know, talking about, oh, my goodness, you know, this girl's pregnant, yada, 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 or I've done this, yada, yada, just going on and on and on about what's going on in their life. I was like, this is completely meaningless. And talking about what um, Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes, like he just lists almost everything that I can think of, if not more, and at the end, he said, all is vanity. And that's where I was. I was like, you know what? I don't want to pursue God, but I have this longing as well as my friends. And I was noticing that, too, that every person that I was hanging out with was trying to find some satisfaction, um, some meaning in everything other than Christ himself. And yet, while that was fulfilling to the flesh, it left the soul void, empty, meaningless, and hungry for something that obviously wasn't getting done from anything else. And that's kind of where I was left off. Is like, you know what? I wonder if this Christ thing really is real. I wonder if, if it would be worth pursuing. And I was like, it might be at some point in my life, but I just don't want to do it now. And, um, and I look back, 
And uh, one thing that really helped me changing it, oh yeah, so that's what I was going to say when I would... I was thinking of my own perception of God and Christianity, and I'm like, okay, God, if you're really there, I mean, I'm out here looking up the sky, show yourself. You know, thinking like when Simba looks outside and Mufasa's up there, that's what I was looking for. And it never happened that way, which is fine, but that's what I was looking for. It didn't happen, so it was a process. It was a long, drawn-out deal. It wasn't just a boom, lightning flash, and then I had changed, so on and so forth. Uh, But... I definitely would point towards the body um, just from the love that they showed to me, um, not in the form of a community group hug saying, Scott, it's going to be okay type deal, but that they showed me love that they were praying for me regardless of what I was doing. They still had hope because they knew it was probably a lot deeper rooted in their faith than I was because I would say that I had none then. But they were a lot more deeply rooted in their faith that they still knew the hope of Christ and that he could still transform a person such as me. And um, in Ezekiel 40, 40, or 36, 26, it says, moreover, and this, this is it. I mean, this, this is the passage that happened to me, that moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And, I mean, that hits it right on the nail that it was nothing by my doing it was nothing that I said, that I thought, um, but it was solely God. I mean, it's, it's crazy to look back at where I was, what I was doing, and not say anything now, but like from the, the transition of the lifestyle I was living to where I am now, it had to be from God, and that was played out through various means and circumstances and the way that God orchestrated events in my life, um, and especially that I was referring to earlier, the body, just the people they continue to come alongside, ask how you're doing, Scott. What's going on? And my dad's friends. I mean, I, and I knew that they knew. It wasn't like a secret that, how did you know that type deal? And again, just from uh, my past history with these people, I respected them enough to hear what they had to say, even though at the time it was kind of like, okay, over my head. But later on, those words picked up more meaning um, than previously uh, before. And... It was funny, and I, I point to this, and I said this, I think, the first week my wife dearly remembers this moment, that when we had open mic here at chapel, I came up and gave a brief testimony of my trip to Chad, and uh, I really do point that out as a, a huge point in my life, not because I'm now a professional missionary of 10 months and could maybe take Scott's job away from him, but... <laughs> But that, you know, it got me out of the country and got me away from a lot of things that I was struggling with, uh, things that I was distracted with. At the time, I was dating this girl for over a year, and I was sitting, this is how it all came to fruition, is that I was sitting in our living room one time, and I was watching TV, it was like 5.30 in the afternoon after work. Dad comes in, and okay, so Dad and I are on speaking terms, we're better than what we were at this point. So Dad comes in, he said, son, how would you like to go to Africa? And I'm like... Where? He's like, well, John Probst called me and wanted to know if I could send either your brother or yourself over to help him with some projects he has going on. And I was like, well, I'll have to think about it a little bit, I guess. He's like, well, I need to know by tomorrow. I was like, okay. And I'd always wanted to go to Kenya. I don't know why. And my older sister had already been to Ethiopia. And I was like, okay, well, here's my chance now. Let me, uh, let me uh, 
think about it and I'll probably go. And I had no idea what Chad was like. It's about like North Dakota, there's nothing out there. But, <laughs> but um, and so I ended up going, I got my tickets, got my shots, vaccinations, things like that to get over there. And uh, it just, it really broke me down. The first week I was there, and I'll try to wrap this up, but the first week I was there I lost 10 pounds because I don't know if I got a bug or what, but I couldn't keep water down. It was the second day at work, and I felt like a loser. It was the second day at work, and I'm just out behind this container throwing up, puking my guts out. And I didn't tell John about that until I just couldn't work anymore. And then, obviously, he knew that I was pretty much useless, so I had to take a break. And uh, I go up, and there's this English nurse that was uh, around, and she would come in. And the worst thing about it was, so it was, it'd get like 110 degrees during the day. At night, it dropped down about 80 I'm sitting there in misery, having mosquito nets around me. There's a, a mosque about three houses down with a loudspeaker, so I get to hear his prayers because I couldn't sleep, and I get to hear his prayers two times a night. And then this English lady would come in, and she would just inject me because she didn't know what was going on. She took all sorts of uh, symptoms and vitals, vitals, and wanting to know what's going on, trying to figure this out, and she didn't know. So I got injections and all that stuff. And... I just sat there throughout that week. I'm like, what am I doing here, God? Okay, and I understand that, you know, I've always wanted to go to Africa, so it's pretty simple that you opened up a door for that to happen, but it's like I didn't sign up for it to be this hard, and um, it's not what I had in mind. But anyway, for I was only there for three months the first time, and the second time around I went back, and then this is what I shared. Um, I think this was my Mufasa moment, but... I was there for three and a half months, and um, I was planning on going back. I already had the ticket, and John came up to me like the week before, and uh, he'd said, well, we still need some help. How would you like to stay on for another three and a half months? And um, I said, well, let me think about it. And he said, you need to know quick so we can change the ticket. And so uh, so I was like, well, let me pray about it a little bit, and then I'll get back with you on Saturday. And then the first – I read this, this – um, it was a little book called Streams in the Desert, and it's basically a 365 daily devotional. And uh, when I was done uh, praying about thinking about it, doing my thing, uh, this is what the first part of uh, that I read in that book, and it was uh, the um, the devotional from December 5th. And it said, "I said, let me walk in the field." And God said, "Nay, walk in the town." And I said, "There are flowers there." And he said, "No flowers," or excuse me, I. I said, there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers but a crown. I said, but the sky is black. There is nothing but noise and din. But he wept as he sent me back. He said, there is more, there is sin. I said, but the air is thick and fogs and are veiling the sun. He answered, yet souls are sick and souls are in the dark undone. I said, I shall miss the light and friends will miss me, they say. And he answered me, choose tonight if I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, is it hard to decide? I will not seem, it will not seem hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I cast one look in the fields and set my face to the town. He said, my child, do you yield? Will you leave the flowers for a crown? Then into his hand went mine, and to my heart came he, and I walk in a light divine, the path I feared to see. Um, and so, to conclude this, the, I had in my notes originally talk about the sovereignty of God, and that was bad because when I think about that, my mind turns to mush. So, it was more explain how that had an impact in my testimony, and a couple of verses come to mind because it just fascinates me 
um, and shows me how powerful God is, how complex he is, just a little bit. I mean, it shows a glimpse of that as to how he orchestrated these events in my life, the people he put me around and that he put me through to shape me into the person that I am today. And, and it's kind of like, how? And so Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, you, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And as far as my testimony is concerned, if people ask me, you know, don't you regret doing the things that you do? And obviously now I would say most certainly, but I think, I think that's the point is to be able to look back at that and share that with other people, and they're kind of left with the question mark over their head, how are you or why are you the person that you are today? And hopefully I could use that in what God did in my life as to point to Christ, and then it wasn't anything other than him, and hopefully give a door and maybe something that another person could relate to uh, that could potentially bring them to Christ. Uh, and so as you guys and everybody is getting ready to go home for the summer and maybe you guys are done here at school and kind of wondering uh, where God has in store for you and the person that you're going to be, you know, even though God does a lot of things that we don't understand and I don't have time to read, uh, if you guys would look it up, it's um, an excerpt from In the Eye of the Storm by Max Licato, pages 144 through 147, um, talks about the sovereignty, it illustrates the sovereignty of God. Even though something's happening now, we don't understand the good in that. Um, give it a little bit. See what happens from that and see how God is shaping us. But even though we may not see the, the end means or the end of the day story of what's happening today, we do know, as from Romans 8.28, um, that God works all things together for the good of those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose, that we can be confident um, no matter where he puts us, no matter where we go. And uh, I would encourage you, even if you don't feel like you have a lot to say, share what you do know um, in whatever capacity that may be. You might be surprised uh, how people respond to that. So I'll pray, and uh, we can go to lunch. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this opportunity to allow me to speak. And um, I thank you for my fellow students and teachers, and I thank you... uh, for your love and your provision. And I pray that you be with all of us in making wise decisions uh, as to the transitions in life and maybe that uh, some might be moving on and trying to figure out a vocation that they might do. Um, and I pray that you help us to, to be still when we need to be and we, uh, we need to be still and know that you are God. Thank you for friends. And uh, in your name I pray, amen.